From high atop Rocky Road in Moab, Utah, it's KZMU News. I'm Molly Marcello. It's Friday, September 9th. Labor Day was this week, and for a growing number, that holiday means more than just time off work. 71% of Americans now approve of labor unions, according to an August Gallup poll. That's the highest approval rating since 1965, and a stark difference to 2009 when less than half of Americans favored organizing. Labor is having a moment, including here in Utah. Two Starbucks have unionized in the state, joining the over 200 locations that have organized across the country. KZMU's Justin Higginbottom chats with organizer Jacob Lawson on his lunch break at Starbucks in Cottonwood Heights in the Salt Lake City Valley. His store was the first to organize back in June. I was born... In West Jordan, so I'm just born and raised here in Utah. Um, I've been with Starbucks for about five years, since about 2017. And I guess I'll first just talk about the fact that that's, like, very rare. Like, most people, I think 30% of the company leaves within, like, the first three months. And 70% leaves within the first nine months. So it's, like, there's there's very high turnover. So what we ended up doing here at this store is we just kind of watched, like, the New York store in Buffalo, um, those stores unionize. We talked about it a lot until we thought that was something um, with the team that we had at the moment that we could do here. Was that hard for for you and your, your coworkers to go ahead and decide to unionize? Were, were you guys scared of losing your job? Um, you know, there's a few people who were scared, but I, I definitely have not been afraid. Neither have most of them especially with, like, the positive, you know, feedback we've seen from the community and uh, everything else. For the most part, we, we set a few records here in Utah. We had the most people to sign cards first at my store ever. We had, like, 19 people sign a card. Um, and then we broke that record again at the Salt Lake City store. Um, the fourth and fourth store, they had 25, 26 people sign cards, which I think was the most in the country. And were, were you interested in labor activism or organizing before that store in Buffalo organized? Honestly, not at all. Uh, I'll be honest, I didn't really know what a union was. I had like a very, you know, basic conception of what one was. Usually people get better pay, they have better benefits. You know, that was just the conception I had of it. My mom's a teacher, so, you know, she's part of the teacher union. My grandpa was a policeman. He was a detective for Salt Lake County you know, sheriff's office for a while. And way back when he formed the first sheriff's deputies union for Salt Lake County. He didn't tell me about this, though, until after I had already been way deep in the union deal. <laughs> so so you have some family history there. Yeah, I had some history that I, I didn't get to find out about until I had already, you know, kind of sealed the deal. My grandpa was a little more hesitant because he was, a, you know, like I said, he was the union president. He formed the union. Um, and he was like, you shouldn't do it. They will never promote you. He's like, I didn't get to become a sergeant because I was the union president. And it's like, I, I don't want to be a store manager. That does, that sounds like an unnecessary burden. Um, I see all the store managers go crazy. <laughs> I'm, I'm very, very okay being just a shift supervisor with the company. So when you your store unionized, what changes, I guess, have you seen so far? You know, honestly, the company is just trying to operate as if nothing's happened. Um, if anything, they're just retaliating um, in just like very petty, petty ways. Like they're letting everyone else wear whatever they want for the new dress code. But they're like, you don't get that. You're a union store. You have to bargain for it. Uh, you don't get the raise. You're a union store. You have to bargain for it. Even though, you know, Howard Schultz was uh, found uh, literally guilty of violating federal labor law. 
and the National Labor Relations Board uh, ordered that they have to give us uh, the raise and the benefits that they withheld with back pay. But the company, they keep just appealing everything in court. So it's just taking, it's just taking a while, you know. The NLRB ruled that they unjustly fired seven workers. They're called the Memphis Seven for organizing their, their store in, uh, you know, Memphis, Tennessee. And um, when the NLRB first ruled that they had to reinstate them, you know, they appealed it. And I think it was literally either earlier today or yesterday that the, their appeal was denied and they have to reinstate these people, which I think, you know, that's kind of a first for us. So that decision maybe provides a little guarantee that you won't be, you know, unjustly fired. Yeah, yeah. You know, they they really, I, I don't know how they pick and choose who, who they fire and who they don't. I'd say if you're a union organizer at Starbucks, you have a 10% chance of, you know, being under their sights and getting fired. But, you know, I know people who are just as noisy and just as active as I am that haven't been, you know, terminated. And I know people who have done the most menial, smallest things ever, and they terminate them for that. And other than the kind of petty retaliation against um, people at your store and other stores. Have you seen benefits since unionizing yet? Or do you imagine those will come in the future? Um, you know, we're still, we just barely like finished the contract and we're trying to propose and bargain with Starbucks. I would say the number one benefit we've seen is like the influx of customer support. And the customers are very, very, very supportive. They tip very well. Um, we have people who come in multiple times a day, not the same person, but multiple different people throughout the day who are like, I just want to tell you, I'm so proud of you guys for unionizing and for standing up for your rights. You know, um, we went on strike here at my Cottonwood Heights store just one day and we made over $2,000 um, just looking to go fund me for like future strike funds and for like events and stuff, uh, just like, you know, general union funds as we, as we build ourselves up. Yeah. Can you describe that, that strike and the decision to, to strike for that day? So we were already very, very tired of the, like what we consider to be retaliatory scheduling. They closed the two nearest stores to us for uh, remodeling. And then they refused to send any of the people who work at the stores to our store. They just sent them to every other store. So we were understaffed, but we were extra, extra busy. So we were, we made sales records like every day for a few weeks there. Um, and then they also came around and decided, this is what made me want to strike, certainly, to say the least, is um, they, they tried to write me up for posting union literature in the store um, and for like not wearing a mask some random obscure point in the future. Um, so like I said, we turned around and went on strike, like I think two days later. Because, you know, like I said, we were upset about the hours and they were trying to, you know, get rid of me. They, they have taken a shot at me, but I, I took a shot back. So it sounds like you, you were able to raise funds from that strike. Do you think it will have any any other positive impact? You know, the strike, I think, really showed them who we are and that we're organized and what we're doing, you know, and that we're not just going to take, take it laying down, you know. We're going to put up a fight, don't infringe on our rights. You know, we, we are workers that are organizing within our federal rights, within the National Labor Relations Act, you know, something that has been signed into law. But my manager and, you know, her manager about her and all of them, they think, they think they're about the law. I think a lot of workers in the service industry, at least in this state, don't really understand what a union's about. Could you describe kind of a, a day-to-day change that a worker would see in a unionized shop we, we've also seen like security within our our jobs 
the company can't just close our store. You know, if a recession hit like it did in 2008, back in 2008, there were, I think, over like 800 stores that Starbucks closed and like, you know, thousands of people were laid off. It was a bad time to be a Starbucks barista. But we, we wouldn't be impacted by that because they, they legally can't close our store. They can't lay us off. You know, we're protected. We're secured. If the recession that, you know, everyone thinks is coming it happens tomorrow and Starbucks close, closes, you know, 2,000 stores, lays off, you know, 80,000 people, we're fine. They can't legally do that. Even though we're in a right-to-work state, I'm no longer, you know, a right-to-work employee. Well, excellent. Is, is there anything else you want, you want to mention, you want to let people know about what it's like working at a unionized Starbucks and, and how it's different? You're a lot closer with your team. And you, honestly, can get away with a lot more because there's what's called concerted protective action. So if you and your entire team, like us, if we say, oh, we don't care that Starbucks says that we don't get the new dress code, which basically is them expanding the color palette, um, we all wear the new dress code anyway because they can't, they haven't written any of us up. They haven't tried to fight any of us on it because it's a concerted protective action. So what I hope everyone learns and realizes is that when the workers come together, we have all of the power. You get to change your workplace and environment however much you want because it's your workplace. It's your environment. You're the one who works there, you know? You get to make these choices and decisions collectively with your other coworkers because you're the ones who work there. You know, it's your shop. You're the ones who are running it. You're the ones who run it every day. If you're curious about organizing or you think that organizing might not be right for you, know that it is right for you. It's right for everyone. You know, um, the only way that the middle class can really sustain itself is through a union. And, you know, it's been such a long time that I think people forget that, you know, the middle class is what built America, but unions are what built the middle class. We, we sh shouldn't be fighting these same battles that we've already won. That's organizer Jacob Lawson speaking with KZMU's Justin Higginbottom. Lawson works at the Starbucks in Cottonwood Heights, the first to unionize in Utah. And now the weekly newsreel, where we check in with reporters on their latest stories of the Moab area. Flooding this summer not only wreaked havoc along the bike path downtown, but on some trails like Grand Staff and Mill Creek Canyons. Sophia Fisher of the Times Independent has more from their coverage. Yeah, we've been doing a lot of stories about the damage to businesses, the in-town damage, um, but also the flood damaged some recreation trails locally, some very popular ones, uh, including Grand Staff Canyon and the Mill Creek Trail in the Power Dam area. Okay, so based on these photos, it looks like um, you were at Grand Staff Trail. Um, what did that look like? It looked, so I didn't go very far in because it was very hot that day. <laughs> but at the beginning, I mean, you walk into the river corridor, everything within, you know, 10 feet, almost everything within 10 feet of the stream is just like flattened, essentially. Mm. Not necessarily dead, but flattened. Mm -hmm. It can be very hard to wayfind in certain spots because there's tons of downed vegetation everywhere, you know, tamarisk mm -hmm. and willow and all of that. Uh, there's debris, you know, four feet up in trees, like wreathed around these trunks. It's actually kind of beautiful. Um, and very hot and very sunny because a lot of the previous shade vegetation has been downed. Looking very different out there. What about Mill Creek, the Mill Creek Trail? 
Similar in the Mill Creek area. Yeah, it's wild. You, um, well, if you go down by the teacups area, the uh, Mill Creek has actually kind of jumped its banks and, and switched uh, its course in certain places, which is pretty cool, actually. Um, but again, if you walk in farther, it's just like flattened everywhere. You can go really far in and look back and see, you know, Potato Salad Hill and the trailhead where previously all you would see was like Tamarisk. Wow. So yeah, pretty different looking. You know, it's not to say that like the environment has been ruined or ne- necessarily anything like that, but it's just a little, you know, harder or different to recreate in those areas. I mean, the trails are all open. They're managed, these two, by the Bureau of Land Management. And they did clarify, trails are open. Folks are using them. Just make sure to bring more water and more sun protection because of the lack of shade. Um, You know, try to follow the trail as best you can. And if you're feeling unsafe or uncertain of where you're going, just turn back. Does the Bureau of Land Management have to do any repairs or, you know, installing new wayfinding signage? Like, what did you talk to them and what what did they have to say? Absolutely. Yeah, I spoke with Park Ranger Todd Murdoch at Grand Staff. And he said there are two volunteer groups coming actually later this month to Grand Staff to just like you said, kind of repair tread, okay. reinstall signage that got washed down, mm-hmm. make make the trail look like a trail again, kind of from you know start to finish. Um, I didn't hear at that moment about any analogous efforts in Mill Creek, but I wouldn't be surprised if there was something, you know, wasn't something similar going on because it's also a, a very popular trail in the Moab area. Well, where do you want to take us next, Sophia? Government bureaucracy is always <laughs> okay. my most exciting stories of the week. I'm assuming this is the Cane Creek development story. Yes, and I don't necessarily mean bureaucracy in a pejorative way, just, okay. you know, the government. Yeah, so as folks may know, there's an upcoming development happening probably on Cane Creek Boulevard. Um Last fall, this kind of came to the fore of community consciousness when two LLCs out of the Wasatch Front purchased about 180 acres of land along Cane Creek Boulevard in the Colorado River Corridor. And, you know, last we heard they're planning to put up a couple dozen housing units, a research and innovation center, um, and a native plant sanctuary. And in order to do that, they need to get certain infrastructure out there, like sewer and culinary water. Folks may remember this because there were a series of evictions from people who had been living there in, you know, various types of structures. Yes, there were 15, 16 existing tenants who were evicted or or helped kind of transition off the property who had been living in kind of non-traditional spaces like caves, which is pretty cool. But anyway, Anyways, the Grand County Commission this week opted at least temporarily to maintain kind of a sense of local control, local ownership over not the development per se, but the way that they're going to be getting some of their utilities, some of their infrastructure. So there was this new body, it's called an improvement district, the Cane Springs Improvement District that was created to provide, I believe it's sewer and then potentially culinary water and and rights of way maintenance to this development. This is a completely legal process. You know, they did it according to state statute. So the county couldn't deny the creation of that district. But they did have the power to assign leadership, the Board of Trustees. And one option was to just make the county commission the Board of Trustees. And that's what the commission opted to do this week. So basically, the Grand County Commission is in charge of this improvement district. Yes, exactly. And in so doing, the county commission noted, you know, the community interest and in some cases concern that have been has been raised, you know, over this development, which a lot of people didn't even necessarily know was possible Mm -hmm. on that land. Um, And also just keeping their options open because of weird intricacies in state statutes, you know, if you make the county commission the board of trustees right now, you have more options to change that in the future. But if you were to choose a different option, you couldn't you couldn't come back and say, mm-hmm. actually, county commission is going to be in charge now. Okay. So it gives their keeps their options open. 
the future options would be to have a board that's a mix of commissioners and then mm-hmm. like owners of the property or a board composed entirely just of owners of the property. Now, this improvement district, like you said, this is going to be um, focused on, you know, utilities, right? Infrastructure. Do we know anything about that process? Who pays for it? Yeah. So improvement districts, they are separate entities from the county. The county does not have any financial liability or responsibility for them. So to be okay. clear, like county staff is not going to be spending any time on this. So what the improvement district does is it provide it's a mechanism for providing like utilities to these areas and it does so by uh, applying taxes or otherwise like assessing properties in the district area mm-hmm. and in this case the district area is completely comprised of these 180 acres so it's essentially like these owner agents are going to work with the commission to I think tax themselves in order to fund these necessary infrastructure improvements sure. so it's you know it's not going to impact county staff it's not going to uh, impact, you know, county residents, as far mm-hmm. as we know at this point. It, it's kind mm-hmm. of self-contained. And at this point, however, the Board of Trustees is the commission. Correct. Well, thank you for breaking that down for us. Is there anything <laughs> else that, you know, needs to be further broken down in, in this in improvement district story? Yeah, it's definitely a very nuanced thing. I'm personally still learning a lot about it. Mm-hmm. So I definitely encourage folks to read through the article because there are a lot of nuanced points that, um, you know, just help clarify the issue as a whole and kind of what the county can do and can't do and how these how these bodies relate and everything like that. And finally, um, the Times Independent's local election coverage continues this week. What is in the paper this time around? Yes, uh, so we are moving right along. And this week we have featured one of the Grand County Commission races. Um, it is Commission District 4, and we featured the two candidates who are Mary McGann and Lori McFarland. So feel free to check out the paper if you want to get a better sense of their backgrounds, you know, what they want to bring to the commission and why you should vote for them. Sophia Fisher, reporter at the Times Independent. Subscription info and more stories can be found at moabtimes.com. For about two decades, nonprofit Rim to Rim Restoration has worked on removing invasive plant species along Mill and Pack Creeks. This work had results during Moab's recent flood. Allison Harford of the Moab Sun News has more from their coverage. So when Mill Creek flooded on August 20th, the record-setting floodwaters swept through town and they spread debris and they damaged infrastructure. Um, But they also allowed Rim-to-Rim Restoration, which is a local environmental nonprofit in town, to test how areas that they had previously restored and taken out invasive plants to see how those areas held up in the flood. And what they found was that the areas that did have invasive plants taken out of them actually fared much better damage-wise um, than areas that didn't during the flood. I talked to um, Cara Dornwind about this, who's the director of the nonprofit. Um, when they took those plants out, the creeks could function as they were supposed to. And so the water was able to spread out more. And when it spread out, it could slow down. And in areas where the creek side is like choked by these invasive plants, um, then the water had nowhere to go and it channelized and went faster and it went higher. Um, So ultimately, this showed rim to rim that now there's another reason to take out invasive plants, which is for flood damage. Wow. Okay. so not just fire, because I know they had been working on fire. Yeah. Previously, big thing was fire and obviously invasive plants crowd out native plants as well. Was was this a surprise to Cara and the folks at Rim to Rim or did they kind of expect this result from their work? So it was kind of expected, but this is the first time that they've really been able um, to test this. And um, Cara said it's been really fascinating and they're taking time to look more into it right now. Um, They've been pretty busy because their office also got damaged in the flood. So they're kind of in the midst of moving 
onto the old USU campus. But yeah, it's been really interesting for her to be able to see these areas, especially because Kara and you know, climate scientists are expecting that we are going to get more floods. And so as the city is thinking about how to rebuild this infrastructure, as far as the strength to um, put into bridges, we also have to think about how to minimize these high flow channels. And so there are a couple steps that Rim to Rim is taking right now. So the first step is to clean up the debris and restore the water line. So there's a lot of debris still around town. And Kara said, if there's another flood, all of that debris will cause the same exact issues of like crowding up and causing infrastructure damage in town. And also when flood season ends, then that debris could become fire fuel. And so first things first, you have to remove the debris. Um, And then second is to start identifying areas that rim to rim specifically can help. So Car is looking into if there's any private property or property that the city doesn't control that may become a risk because um, the nonprofit can really work across political boundaries. Like they can work with the city of Moab, they can work with the BLM and the state. Um, Meanwhile, all three of those departments kind of have to work within their own set of rules and boundaries. And so um, Room to Room can really work across that and start kind of identifying you know, where should we be focusing for the next year's worth of floods? And you mentioned all of their public partners that the nonprofit has. And there is, like you said, private property. Can they also work with private landowners? Yeah, yeah. So they can work with private landowners. And Cara said a big thing is usually um, Room to Room can get funding for projects a lot faster than some of like the city could or the BLM could, for example. Cara said we've lived in a flash flood system for this entire time, like Moab has always flash flooded. And I think now we're all starting to come to terms with what that means for the future. No kidding. You know, it's interesting. We had this major, major flood, but you know, last year there was flooding too. So it seems like this is now at the forefront of everyone's minds. Right, exactly. Well, where do you want to take us next? So um, there are two events coming up the weekend of the 16th. And one of them is this Nights of Grief and Mystery performance. It kind of centers around the musician Gregory Hoskins and Stephen Jenkinson, who is an author and activist who's worked the majority of his career working with dying people. Um, He also worked in hospice. And so the two of them got together and created this project called Nights of Grief and Mystery, which explores life and death through a performance of music, storytelling, poetry, and mostly ceremony. So I talked to Hoskins and Jenkinson about the performance, and they both said that, especially in the last couple of years, we've had this changing relationship to death and dying. And Jenkinson said it's really important to... um, create more of a partnership with death instead of thinking it as this scary end of life thing. Um, Life becomes a lot easier if you can think of death as this constant companion. And so this performance is really supposed to be um, kind of a reflection. Jenkinson said, not everyone's going to like it, but saying that the majority of people do love this performance. Um, I talked to Pam Hackley, who's a Moab resident who helps bring the event to Moab. Um, So the way that it works is, uh, Jenkinson and Hoskins will put out the call to anyone who's like signed up for their newsletters and ask which communities could host the performance. And Pam was the one who brought the performance to Moab because she kind of wrote this love letter about Moab. So Pam said she first saw the performance in Salt Lake City in 2019. And 
it really invited her to explore grief on many levels um, and to explore what it means and what's been lost in being an elder in our society. And so it was really special to her. And that's why she decided to bring it here. I I do feel like for all of us, you know, who have gone through this pandemic, there's Mm -hmm. even grief there with the change in our our lives and not just to mention, you know, the concept of death and people we know who have died. So this sounds like a really fascinating event. And is it a a fundraiser for hospice as well? Yeah, yeah. So tickets are technically free, um, but donations to hospice are encouraged. Um, And you can reserve tickets on the Moab Regional Hospital's website. Amazing. Anything else to mention about this this event, Ali? Yeah. So um, Stephen Jenkinson said it's really hard to pin down what this is. Um, But he said a lot of it is very ceremonial. um, And it really brings together the audience and the hosts of this event. It's one of those where you're just going to have to show up and find out, I bet. Well, you have another event that's uh, profiled in the Moab Sun News this week, and that is Melon Days. Can you tell us uh, the latest with this longstanding Green River event? So Melon Days is in its 116th year. Um, and this year will be much of the same as last year and also greater because this is you know, one of the first years that they've been able to come back post-COVID. So there will be a parade with the iconic watermelon float. Um, there will be melon taste tests from local growers who have a huge variety of melons, like melons you've never heard of, in addition to the classic watermelons. Um, and there's a bunch of sports events as well. There's going to be a 5K run, a golf tournament, a softball tournament, And then there's also a vendor fair. And so kind of the main center of this festival is um, in the park where the melon tasting is and the vendor festival. And this year there will be over 90 vendors and 15 of those are food vendors. And so the vendors range from everywhere, from local artisans to information booths for organizations. And this is not this weekend, but next weekend. Um, Does it start the 16th? Yeah, it starts the 16th and it goes until the 17th. Both the people who I talked to, so I talked to um, this curator at the museum, and then I also talked to Robin Hunt, who's the event coordinator for Green River. And they both said that this event is really important to the community, and it's also a huge tourism draw. So uh, Green River has a population of around 900, but Robin Hunt expects there to be over 6,000 people in town for the festival. So it's a huge draw, both for people in Moab who have heard of Green River and also for people who are returning to Green River just for the festival. Allison Harford, reporter at the Moab Sun News. Subscription info and more stories can be found at moabsunnews.com. That's it for the weekly newsreel, where we check in with reporters on their latest stories of the Moab area. You can find the pieces that were mentioned today in the show notes at our website, kzmu.org, or wherever you listen to the KZMU News podcast. As always, thanks for tuning in and supporting KZMU, community-powered radio.